0: I know that we have uh, quite a few people who are watching online tonight. Um, whether that be our students who are at home, hopefully you guys made it all home safe. Um, we also have a number of folks in our church, unfortunately, who are quarantining um, because of our uh, the pandemic situation, um, as well as families who are watching from home. And so, to all of you who are watching online, welcome. Um, and if, is, this is, if this is your first time tuning in, I want to say a special welcome to you as well. Uh, we're in the middle of a series going through the book of Ecclesiastes, Called Finding the Meaning in the Madness. So you can go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes um, in your Bibles. Um, And because there are some new faces watching and here tonight, um, I want to briefly review where we've been so far in this series through the book of Ecclesiastes. So in week one, we introduced the person speaking. In the book, and that is King Solomon, the son of David. He is writing this book quite likely towards the end of his life, and he's looking back on the experiences that he's had to teach the people how to make the most of their 70 years, he says, under the sun, and that's a phrase that comes up in this book a bunch of times, under the sun, and it's a thematic phrase uh, that, that we talked about. And this book, at first, seems like a pretty negative read. You know, it, it seems very nihilistic. Nihilism is the philosophy that teaches that life is completely meaningless. And after all, the, the word that's used most often in this book is meaningless. Or perhaps your translation might say the word vanity. And it seems at first blush like Solomon is a nihilist, telling us that life is void of any meaning whatsoever. But that is not at all his goal. As we learned, the goal of Ecclesiastes is to deconstruct all of the ways that we try to find meaning in life outside of God. We try to find ultimate satisfaction in things like human progress, in achievements, in goals, in pleasure, in being a good person, in work, in, in contributing to society, accomplishing new and big and better things. And Solomon tells us that none of those things are, are bad. In fact, a lot of those things are worthy pursuits. But what he wants us to see is that none of those things are actually ultimate. None of those things are eternal. None of those things bring ultimate satisfaction. And so last week we talked about finding our ultimate satisfaction, our our ultimate pleasure in the giver, rather than the gift. Because when our satisfaction is in God, we can actually be free to enjoy the things that He gives us on earth. Because there's nothing on earth that can bear the weight of eternal satisfaction, that that crushing weight of eternal satisfaction when placed upon anything that is not eternal is crushed there's nothing under the sun as solomon puts it that can stand up to that kind of pressure only the eternal god can withstand the weight of that burden only he can satisfy and so solomon teaches us trying to find our meaning in anything else is meaningless Vanity. Or the word that we have decided to substitute in this series, anytime we see the word meaningless or vanity, what word do we use? Eli? Bubbles. 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 That's right. Anytime we come to the, the word meaningless or vanity in this book, we say bubbles. Bubbles, bubbles, all is bubbles. Bubbles, that's right, babe. Because the Hebrew word that's used here, hevel, literally means a vapor. And and Solomon is using that word vapor to draw an analogy for us. He's saying that everything is transient. Nothing is permanent here under the sun. Everything is impossible to grasp. Just when you think that you've got it, it pops. It's impossible to build eternity on it because it's here one moment and and it's gone the next. And and again, he's not saying that these are bad things He's saying that these things are floating away, and if you try to spend your time under the sun finding yourself in those things, you're going to find yourself at the end of your life having gained nothing, because the bubbles have all floated away, or popped. And so he tells us that the purpose of life is to please God. And when we do that, it's at that point that we can find enjoyment in our toil. There is beauty in the bubbles because we know that the bubbles is not all that there is. So tonight we turn our attention to chapter 3. And Solomon here is going to deconstruct for us an idol that quite likely every single one of us has in our lives. We may not all be trying to find ourselves in the same things, and we're all different people. We have different passions, different interests, different strengths and weaknesses, and so there may be some of us that are trying to find ourselves in our work. Maybe some of us are trying to find ourselves in pleasure. Maybe some of us are trying to find our meaning in being a good person, but in chapter 3, Solomon is quite likely going to hit every single one of us right between the eyes, Um, In September 2018, CNN published an article describing a world that is full of buttons that do not work. Our world, this article says, is filled with non-functioning buttons. The author, Jacopo Cristo, tells us that quite likely every single one of us has pushed buttons many times that don't actually do anything. And, and these buttons are called placebo buttons. Placebo buttons. In other words, they're buttons that we press, thinking that we're accomplishing something, but we actually aren't. And so Crispo says, here's some examples. And, and, and I confess to you as I give you these examples that I'm sorry some of this might frustrate you, okay? Spoiler alert, what I'm about to tell you may upset you, okay? Have you ever been walking downtown in a city... And you come to a crosswalk, and and you see a nice white sign with a picture of a pedestrian on it and an invitation on it that says, push button to cross. You reach over, and you press it. And then you wait for the light to change. And after a few moments, you get the sign of that white guy who looks like he's doing the first step in a dance, right? He's going like this. Nobody actually walks like this. Unless they're doing a dance, okay? So you get the sign of the white guy doing this. And so then you cross the street. Well, did you know that in the vast majority of cases, pushing that button doesn't actually do anything? It doesn't make the light change any faster. In fact, it accomplishes literally nothing. In New York City, for example, there are approximately 1,000 crosswalk buttons. But according to the city's Department of Transportation, only about 100 of those buttons actually function. Now, by function, Hit stop. Boom. I did better than last time. (laughs) Okay, so only about 100 of those buttons in New York City actually function. And by function, what we mean is changing the timing of the light. They function in the sense of lighting up and making noise, but they don't actually do anything. Only about 10% make a difference in how long a person is going to wait to cross the street. As late as 2004, about 750 of them were still functional. But since then, that number has steadily decreased. Things like worsening traffic and higher congestion, those things are controlled by advanced algorithms and advanced automated systems and traffic sensors. But instead of the city getting rid of the crosswalk buttons, they simply decided to just turn off their functionality. Similar reports and corresponding numbers have been confirmed in other major cities like Boston, Dallas, and Seattle. And then, in 2010, ABC News did a study on this very thing. And they looked at the cities of Austin, Texas, Gainesville, Florida, and Syracuse, New York. And in these three cities, the actual number of functioning crosswalk buttons is one. Literally one. So if you find yourself in Syracuse, chances are you are not going to be pushing the one button that makes a difference. In London, that number is zero, okay? London has 6,000 crosswalks. None of them have functioning crosswalk buttons. If you push the button, you'll get a little sign that lights up that says, wait, And that makes you believe, okay, the system knows that I'm here. It's going to change it. But it doesn't make the traffic light change any faster. It's only a placebo button. Okay, here's another one. Raise your hand if you have ever ridden on an elevator. Yep, that's all of us. We've all been on an elevator. So you get on the elevator. You know where you're going. You know that nobody else is approaching. And so you do what any rational person does in that situation. After all, we're busy people, we don't have time to wait. And so, you reach down and you push the closed doors button. We've all pushed the closed doors button. Well, I have terrible news for you. That button doesn't do anything. It almost certainly does not even work. According to Kevin Brinkman of the National Elevator Industry... To put it simply, the riding public will not be able to make the doors close any faster using that button. So why is that button there? Well, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 required that elevator doors remain open long enough for anyone who's in a wheelchair or on crutches or has any other form of disability that the the doors would stay open long enough to, to allow that person to get onto the elevator. So... Pressing the closed doors button does nothing, because if it did, it would be breaking that law. However, in the case of an emergency, if a firefighter or maintenance worker were to get on the elevator and insert an override key and turn it, they can make the doors close faster with that button. So unless you're a firefighter or emergency worker with an override key, pushing that button does nothing. It is a placebo button. Ready to get even angrier? You may already know that when you go to a hotel, most hotels limit the range of how much a customer can change the thermostat in their rooms. They want to save on energy costs and they want to have a consistent environment across the entire building to make it comfortable for all of their guests. But did you know that many, if not most, of the thermostats in a hotel are literally designed with placebo function? Meaning, there's a a thermostat in your hotel room, but more than likely, it does not do anything. You might be able to change it one degree up or down, maybe, but you also are quite likely in a room where the thermostat is completely decorative. Robert Bean, who works for the American Society of Heating and Air Engineers, explains the placebo function. He says, thermal comfort research demonstrates that when people have perceived temperature control over their spaces, some may tolerate higher levels of discomfort if a non-functioning placebo thermostat or limited-function thermostat is installed, just having the option to manipulate it can affect one's perception. So literally, it is only there to make you feel better because you would think that you can affect a change. And this is not only true of hotels, this is also the case in many offices and businesses. According to one survey, 72% of industry professionals say that they have installed dummy thermostats, placebo thermostats for clients. One of them is quoted as saying, thermal comfort is 90% mental and 10% physical. <laughs> so they know, they know for sure that they're pulling the wool over your eyes. In an article in the Wall Street Journal in 2003, one HVAC specialist Uh, Claimed that 90% of office thermostats are fake. And some companies even install noise generators to complete the illusion, right? So you go over and you're like, man, I'm feeling really hot. I need to change the the thermostat to turn on the AC. And so you reach over and you turn the temperature down. And then you hear a noise. You hear it start to whir. You, You hear air beginning to move. You think that it's the AC turning on, but really, it's just a tiny fan that the company has installed to turn on when that dummy thermostat is is pushed so that you can hear it and believe that you have adjusted the thermostat. It is a dirty little deceptive placebo button. In the 1970s, Harvard researcher Ellen Langer coined the term, the illusion of control. And she says, taking action leads people to feel a sense of control over a situation. And that feels good, rather than just being a passive bystander. Doing something typically feels better than doing nothing. So subsequent researchers after Ellen Langer have corroborated this so-called illusion of control. And they've done a number of of experiments uh, to demonstrate this. For example, participants in a lottery experiment believed that they had more control over the outcome if they chose their own numbers rather than having them randomly assigned. People believe they are less likely to get in a car accident if they're driving rather than being in the passenger seat. In the game of craps, gamblers tend to throw the dice harder when they need higher numbers, evidencing an implicit belief that skill in rolling dice can somehow change the control of their fortune. Time and time again, research has demonstrated that intelligence, knowledge, and reason notwithstanding People often believe that they have control over events in their lives, even when such control is impossible. After all, haven't we all approached an elevator, seen that the up or down button is already lit, but we press it anyway? It's already, already been pressed, We press it anyway, and we do it because we believe that it accomplished something. And when the doors open, we believe that it happened quicker because of what I did. An author named David McRaney puts it this way. If you happen to find yourself pressing a non-functional closed door button, and the later the doors close, you'll probably notice a little spurt of happiness will cascade through your brain once you see what you believe is a response to your action and your behavior, was just reinforced, you will keep pressing the button in the future. Placebo buttons are like superstitions. If you put on your favorite lucky jersey and your team wins, you're probably going to keep putting on that same lucky jersey, even though it has literally no outcome whatsoever over the game. It makes you feel better. It gives you the illusion of control. And many of us, I'd say most of us. In fact, I would, I would say all of us, but maybe there's some really super humble people who are here or listening online that don't have this illusion of control. But most of us, in one form or another, struggle with the illusion of control. Maybe not all the time, but at least some of the time. We believe things like, if I'm a good person good things will happen to me. We believe that if we do things the right way, we'll get the right result. We believe that we just need to have the right attitude, the right work ethic, and the right sorts of things to spend our time doing, and then we'll have a great fulfilling life. This, however, is an illusion. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, Human beings have very little control over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely out of their control. This includes the century and the place they are born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in every day. In short, all we are and all we have is given to us by God. We are not infinite creators but finite, dependent creatures. And so today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon the preacher, who, who we've described as a gardener, who is pruning away false thinking, is going to prune away the illusion of control. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. is bubbles. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should enjoy his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So what we're going to do we're going to take this chapter, and we're actually going to study it in the wrong order. We're going to go section 1, then section 3, then section 2. And so we're, we're flipping the order around, and, and the reason why we're going to do that is because I want to build us toward uh, an easy-to-understand conclusion. So we'll, we'll first look at verses 1 through 8, then we'll look at verses 16 through 22, then verses 9 through 15. Verses 1 through 8 are some of the most commonly quoted passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's poetic. It's, it's symmetrical. There's a time for this, then there's a time for that. A time for this, a time for that. And what it does is it seems to put the world in seemingly easy-to-digest categories. And there is a right way to look at these verses. And there is a wrong way to look at these verses. So, if you're taking notes... Here is point number one. Life is not out of control. It's only out of yours. Life life is not out of control. It's only out of your control. So there's a seemingly simple way of looking at these verses. And, And it's natural to us because the way that we tend to function is in a formulaic illusion of control. We think, if I do this then this will happen. So it's easy for us to approach these verses and think, all right, cool. Solomon is telling us how to live, how to be wise on how to live so that we can know when should I plant and when should I pluck. He's telling me know for sure when to break down and when to build up. When should I cast away stones? When should I gather stones? Etc. Etc. et, cetera, et cetera. We can look at this, if we're not careful, like it is a to-do list. But that's not what Solomon is trying to accomplish. That's not what he's trying to give us. Yes, it is true that we do need to seek wisdom consistently to know what time we're in. Absolutely. Yes, we need discernment to guide us in order to show us how to live in the here and now and discern whatever the here and now requires. But what Solomon is actually showing us is that life is outside of our control. It's not out of control because God is in control. It's only out of my control. I cannot control this stuff. Note that up to this point, Solomon has been telling us the things that he himself set about doing. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek out wisdom. I Did this. I applied my heart to seek out wisdom. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So he then says, So this is what I tried next. I decided to seek out pleasure. Then in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Okay. Next step, I'm gonna cheer my body with wine. Then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, he says, This is all the stuff. That I did to try to make myself happy. I made great works. I accomplished great things. I amassed great wealth. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. Chapter 2 verse 12 he says. I turned to consider madness and wisdom and folly. And so I did this next. Chapter 2 verse 20 he says. I turned my heart over to despair over the folly of my toil. And so over and over and over up to this point. He's been talking about this is what I did. And then this is what I did next. And then I tried this. And that didn't work, so I tried that. And I kept this, and then I did that, and so on and so on. Now in chapter 3, he suddenly turns from this is what I did to this is what happens. There was a time for this and a time for that. There's a time for this, and there's a time for that. So, what he is saying is, there is nothing that I can do to change these things. There is nothing that I can do to bring these things about. There is nothing that any of us can do to make the season change. There's nothing we can do to predict how long it will last or when it will come. There, there are things that we can control, right? Our actions the way that we handle our desires and our emotions, how hard we work, how wisely we live, etc. But we cannot control the season. We cannot control what time it is. We can't control when these matters will take place under heaven. Now we can be assured that these things will happen, but it's not up to us when they happen we do not get to decide when to be born or when to die. We don't get to decide when we're going to have to weep and then when we're going to be able to laugh at the end of that time. We don't get to control what other people are going to do that leaves us in a time where we're no longer embracing. And so Solomon here is telling us, you need to accept that there are simply things that are beyond your control. It is up to God what happens when. We spend a lot of our energy trying to create a future for ourselves. We spend a lot of of work and planning and effort trying to write our own story. But ultimately, we don't change the story. Ultimately, we don't change the future. These seasons are going to come and go completely outside of our control. So the idol that Solomon is trying to root out in our hearts is the idol of control. The way that we're trying to find meaning outside of God by pretending that we are in control. A commentator named Bill Baldwin points out that this passage is not prescriptive but rather descriptive, and this was a, 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 an element of scripture interpretation that we talked about a, a couple of series ago, that sometimes you have to approach the Bible and, and figure out, is this telling me what to do, or is this just telling me how it is, and this is a passage that is not telling us what to do, it's a passage that's telling us how it is, so the preacher is not telling you there's a time that you should set about doing all of these things and that your happiness depends on knowing what to do when. That, that, that's not what's, what's happening. Rather, he is saying God has already appointed times when this stuff is going to happen to you, whether you like it or not. Solomon is also pointing us to the vanity, to the, the bubbles of trying to build a solid foundation on ground that keeps moving. You can't build a solid foundation on ground that keeps moving. So what he's saying here is there is nothing under the sun that lasts. So you cannot build a lasting hope on any of this stuff. You can't try to build lasting hope on laughter, because at some point, there's going to come a time of mourning, and you can't control whether not, well, when that's going to be, or whether or not it's going to happen. You can't set your lasting hope on peace, because at some point, war is going to come, whether you want it to or not. You can't set your hope on any human relationship, on a friendship, on a romance, on a marriage, on a a business partnership. You can't set your hope on a human relationship because at some point that person is going to let you down and you're going to be in a time where you're refraining from embracing. And so you have to accept the fact that you are not in control of the time and the seasons. God is. Last week um, during BCM, I was talking about some of these things and Stephanie made a comment that resonated with me. She was talking about having the illusion of control and she was talking about how she was planning out her school year. And, and she was planning out what she was going to do and, and what she was going to accomplish. And she said, I had, everything l- <clears throat> I had everything listed out. The one thing that I didn't have on my list was a worldwide pandemic. And I kind of chuckled, and I was like, that's, that's true of all of us, right? We all had an idea of, this is what I'm going to do in 2020. And then 2020, over and over and over, kept showing us, sorry, you're not in control. I have another thing to twist your plans. 2020 is a meme, right? All of us are going to look at this year and go, yeah, I'm glad that is over, <laughs> We can all identify with this. We we can identify with having a, a deeper sense of, of being out of control during this time. People have lost their jobs. Plans have been made and canceled ten billion times. Okay, my my brother and sister in law over here, uh, they just got married, and their wedding was a backup wedding plan, and then their honeymoon was a backup to a backup to a backup to a what are we going to do now because all of our other plans have been canceled. Every single one of us has and, and continues to grapple with the inescapable uncertainty of our future. But here's the thing. This, this pandemic has not taken away our control. Okay, The pandemic has taken away the illusion of control. It hasn't created the situation It has highlighted it for us. It has turned our attention and woken us up to, opened our eyes to the fact, oh, I actually am not in control of my life. It has highlighted the fact that whatever placebo buttons we've been trying to push in life, it hasn't changed a thing. Because we're living in a world that does not answer to us living in a world that I can't control with the push of these buttons. But Solomon isn't saying that the world doesn't answer to anyone. He's not saying that life is completely meaningless and random. In fact, he shows us it's the opposite of random. As we can see, it's very structured, right? There are set times and set seasons. There are consistent patterns designed to come about at clearly designed intervals. So we can't just throw up our hands and say, no one can ever find meaning in anything. Instead, we're to turn our eyes upward to look at the one who is in control at every given moment. We are to trust every single day in the person who designed the system and the symmetry. He knows the perfect time for anything and everything. In a passage in Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to a bunch of philosophers and he says, There is one God who made, from, every, uh, who made one man, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God does not give us this list to tell us to figure out what to do and how to bring these things about. He is setting up these times in order to draw our attention upward and place our trust in him. Because I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but he does. I'm reminded of a a video that I saw on Facebook one time. And this video was a, a humorous take On parenting. So this video, there's this dad, and he is a dad who likes to play video games. And so he found a way to keep his children occupied so that he could continue playing video games undisturbed. He handed each of his kids a controller and told them that they were playing the game with him. And so he starts the game, and all three of them are pushing the buttons on their controllers, and they're all cheering, and and, and when things go well, when they shoot the bad guys, everyone's like, oh yeah, we're doing such a great job, and he's encouraging them, good job, kids, good job, kids. But what the kids don't realize is that their controllers aren't plugged in. He's given them placebo controllers. They think they're playing the game. They think that that when they're, they're scoring points, they're the ones doing it, but dad is really the only one who's playing. And we kind of watch this video and we laugh and we're like, smart dad, (laughs) dumb kids. But that's how it is with us in our lives. Now, I'm not trying to say that our actions every single day are literally meaningless. Our controller isn't plugged in. We're accomplishing nothing. What I am trying to say is let's not get confused who is actually running the game. It's not me. It's dad. Dad is controlling the game. Have you ever noticed that when things don't go our way, we rage out? We, we lose our tempers because the formula didn't work. And we sit there and we go, I, I put in the right numbers. I, I did the right math. Why is this what I'm getting? I, I thought if I do this, then I get that. And I did this, but I didn't get that. But that's exactly what happens when someone who's accustomed to having so much control really realizes that they actually have no control whatsoever. They lash out. Pete Wilson puts it this way in his book, Empty Promises. He says, when a power worshiper smashes his nose against the limits of his control, everyone suffers. So self-examination time. Has anyone ever accused you... Of or have you ever admitted to being a control freak? Do you get upset when things don't go exactly the way you want them to be? Do you get anxious when you don't know the answer, when you don't know the plan, when you don't know the the path? Do you ever worry? Do you ever fear? Well, both worry and fear are symptoms of a loss of control. We are worried that things will not go as they should. We're afraid of things happening simply because we cannot control what is going to happen. In his book, Sipping Salt Water, Steve Hopp points out that the idol of control is often masked and hidden behind a more obvious idol. So some of us might be saying, well, I don't have the idol of control. So this guy says, "We'll take a look closer. He gives the example of somebody who's OCD, spending hours and hours cleaning their house. The obvious idol, which you might be thinking would be cleanliness, is actually hiding the idol of control. I can control my living space completely. He gives the example of a woman who spends every bit of her free time on dating websites trying to find a husband. Her obvious idol is control, but the, uh, I'm sorry, her obvious idol is marriage, but the, the hidden idol is control. I can control my future. He gives the the example of a guy who's addicted to working out. The obvious idol might seem like fitness, but the hidden idol is control over his body. So there are many times where there's an idol that we can easily identify, but often that idol is just a deeper symptom of an idol at the root, the idol of control. And this has been the case since the beginning of time. If you take things into your own hands, you'll be happier for it. Don't trust God to give you satisfaction. He's holding out on you. If you want something done right, you better do it yourself. But the result of that story hasn't changed from the beginning of time either. Our gods of control have never led us to the promised land. They have only led us to pain, confusion, and brokenness. So what does this look like for you? How does this manifest in your life? Try asking yourself this question. What do I worry about the most? What am I most afraid of losing? What things do I value the most? Perhaps in in considering those things, you'll be able to identify the question of, of where that idol of control might be hiding in your life. We have to give up this illusion. We have to stop believing that we're in control of our lives. Now, let me remind us before we move on. Again, this doesn't mean that we just throw up our hands and say, nothing matters. I'm not the one in control. Solomon is not saying that we should stop living lives of obedience and wisdom. He's already told us that that's the one thing that we should do. He's simply telling us that that, that no matter what, there is a bigger story that's being written. And no matter what you do, at some point, the story is going to end. So this is point number two. Finite creatures need finite perspective. Let's look... um, At verses 16 through 22 once more, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is bubbles. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all to dust return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw there's nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So, here, he points us to the reality that all is not as it should be, right? We are living in a broken world with broken systems. There, there is a longing for permanence that we have, but everywhere we look, what we see is the opposite. Every single one of us is going to die, period. Yes, it's a little creepy, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. Solomon is, so, is pointing us to the fact that death is coming for us all. And anything you do to try to avoid that reality is a placebo button. Health and wellness and fitness, well, if that's a way that you're trying to use to push off the inevitable aging and death, it's a placebo button. Advances in science to extend our lives or, or, or give us improvements of quality of life. Placebo button. Accomplishing things that will be historically significant, which give your name a lasting legacy that extends beyond even your own life. Placebo button. Because you will not be around to enjoy it. Like I said before, if you're lucky... Most of us are going to be forgotten, okay? A hundred years from now, nobody will know that we even existed. If you're lucky, a hundred years from now, you might be the answer on some 13-year-old's history test. Hooray. So what? Placebo button. Solomon promises us that every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we accomplish, is going To die. You cannot control this reality. You cannot change it. Sooner or later, it's coming. So, are you ready for that inevitable reality? God uses the guarantee of death as a way to remind us that we are created, finite beings. We cannot ever progress as a human race beyond the promise of death. We can't do that. There is only one person who can make us eternal. Him. Verse 21, uh, we might read and, and say, well, what's going on here? Where he says, who knows whether the spirit of the man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Does it seem like Solomon is just kind of wondering what happens after death? Who knows? That's not what's actually going on. He's, he's not saying, is there an afterlife? Who knows? Because he's already discussed the reality of eternity on, on several occasions. And remember the phrase, under the sun. He, he uses this phrase because he's drawing a contrast between what happens under the sun and what is eternal. And so what he's doing here is he's reminding us if All of life is just what happens under the sun. What makes us any different than animals? They breathe, we breathe. They die, we die. Their bodies decompose, our bodies decompose. We're the same in that sense. The same situation. So one commentator put it this way, he says, The distinction between man and beast is annulled by death. The former's boasted superiority, his power of conceiving and planning, his greatness, skill, strength, and cunning all come under the category of vanity as they cannot ward off the inevitable blow. So mankind believes that he is actually greater than what he truly is. If, in fact, we are not eternal beings, as secular humanism teaches, what Solomon is saying then is, if we're not eternal beings, we are no different than the animals. So if you believe that mankind has any kind of intrinsic value, it has to come from somewhere. And that somewhere can't be anywhere under the sun. There can be nothing under the sun. If this is all that there is, if under the sun is all we get, then nothing here can bring us value beyond a beast. So in asking who knows, Solomon is putting himself in the position of someone who doesn't have eternal perspective. He's saying, if that's you, how are you supposed to know what happens next? He's forcing you to examine the logical conclusions of your worldview. And he says in verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is another reminder that he gives us to have eternal perspective by rejoicing in the fact that God has given you a life. No matter what it is, no matter what you have, because it's not up to you what comes after you, you rejoice in it. So we have to close by looking at this eternal perspective. Point number three. God is in control and he has created us for eternity. God is in control and he has created us for eternity. Look once more at verses 9 through 15. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceived there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which has already been, and that which is to be, has already been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So very clearly there in in verse 11, Solomon says, God has put eternity into our hearts we are hardwired by God with eternity in our souls. The longings that we have that are bigger than this life are there because God put them there on purpose. And so, no matter what time we are currently in the middle of, whether it's time to weep or time to laugh, It is always with eternity in our hearts, knowing that this time will not last, but eternity will. Eternity will. C.S. Lewis, when he was talking about this very thing, pointed to the fact that our souls hunger for things that this world cannot satisfy. He, He says, if I'm hungry, that tells me that there's something that can satisfy my stomach. Food. If I'm thirsty, that that tells me that there's a reality of something that can quench my thirst. Water. So if my soul longs for things that this world cannot satisfy, it points me to the reality of something that is beyond. That only that can satisfy what I long for. That's exactly what Solomon is telling us here. He's saying that we have to stop pushing placebo buttons. Stop pushing placebo buttons to try to give us meaning under the sun. God is the only one that can give those buttons any type of function. Again, the things that he talks about aren't bad, okay? We're not talking about bad things. We're talking about good things that we've created uh, or or that we've made to be ultimate, and they're not ultimate. And so when we try to make them ultimate, it's just a placebo button, and it doesn't do anything. But it's not that the thing is bad. The thing is actually good. We just have to have the right perspective, the perspective of eternity. And when we have the, the eternal perspective, God gives those buttons actual function, Look at some of the things that he points at. In verse 9, he talks about work. What has the worker gained from his toil? Okay, He's already talked previously about how work is just bubbles if that's all that that there is under the sun. So he talks about work. In verse 13, he talks about eating, drinking, and pleasure. That was all of chapter 2. So these are things that he's talked about before that in and of themselves, if we try to make them ultimate, are just bubbles. But then he says that God makes everything beautiful in its time. God determines in his timing when these things are to be beautiful. So I'm not the one pushing the crosswalk button. Because if I'm the one who's pushing it, it doesn't do anything. I'm not the one who's pushing the closed doors button on the elevator. Because when I push it, it doesn't do anything. If I push on pleasure, if I push on work, if I push on anything else under the sun, it doesn't do anything because it's a placebo. But when God pushes it, then it actually does something. He has the override key. Everything can become beautiful when God is the one we are trusting to be in control. If I'm riding on an elevator with God, I know that He can push that button and it's going to do something. And I can enjoy the, the doors closing a bit faster. Isn't it true that we spend so much time every single day always wanting to be in the next season? If you're single, you're looking forward to marriage. If you're married, you're looking forward to kids. If you have kids, you're looking forward to when your kids go off to college so that you won't have to clean up after them anymore. If, if your kids are now in college, you're looking forward for them to get married. And when they get married, you're looking forward to them having grandkids on and on and on whatever season we're in so often what we do is we say the next thing is going to make me happy and then we're in that thing and we go actually it's the next thing that's going to make us happy we're always looking to the next time the next season rarely do we pause and stop and just enjoy today when i'm not the one who has to push the buttons When I'm not the one who's in control of whatever season I'm in, when I'm trusting in God, it's only at that point that I can actually enjoy and be content in whatever today is. I don't have to wait for the season to change to be happy because I know that this season is not eternity. I'm satisfied in the one who controls these things, so bring what may come, I'm going to be content. Philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way, as we are always preparing to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. If we're always just preparing to be happy when the next thing comes, we never are actually happy. We can only have that satisfaction in an unchanging, eternal God. And so he says in verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they Live. Whatever time it is, be joyful and do good because God is in control, not you. You don't just throw up your hands and say, ah, it's meaningless, it's nothing. He says, no, you trust in the God that's in control and then be joyful and do good. Eat and drink and be merry. Let everyone eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil because this is God's gift. To man. When you have the right perspective, you can be content no matter what time it is. Now, this will only be possible if God is the one who is running your life. See, there's a difference between acknowledging the reality of God, saying, Oh, yeah, I, I believe that God is out there, even admitting that the Bible is true and giving God control of your life. There's a difference between those two. And, and so many of us think, well, being a Christian is about believing in God. Well, James chapter five talks about the demons and he says, even the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder in fear because of it, because they know what is true. Satan himself has no question about whether or not God is real. But Satan has not surrendered to the control of God over his life. So our belief in God must be so much more than a mental acknowledgement of his existence or his truth. He has to be the the one with the keys to your life. If we are going to have eternal perspective, if we're gonna be satisfied, if we're gonna be happy, we must surrender the control of our lives to Jesus Christ. And that is what he died to purchase for us. Eternal joy and eternal freedom. Do not let this message pass over you without considering, have I given God control or do I just believe? Do I just mentally acknowledge? Do I, do I know that he's out there and, and maybe even we have a friendly disposition, I like him and I think he likes me and, and I do certain good churchy things like reading my Bible sometimes, going to church sometimes, we're good, right God? No. No. We must give him the control of our lives because when we surrender, when we give him that, it's at that point that he says, eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil because God has given you that gift. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, thank you for giving us This message, Lord, that calls us to surrender. That calls us to realize we are not the ones in charge. God, I pray that if there's anyone here or anyone watching on Facebook right now or or listening to the podcast later on. If there's anyone, Lord, who has not come to that place of surrender. God, I pray that you would call them to yourself right now. Lord, that your spirit would speak to each one of them and say, lay down. Lay down the control of your life. Give it to me. I love you enough to die for you. Lord, may tonight be the night that they place their trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for all of us as as every single one of us battles against this illusion of control, this, this idol of control. For all of us that might be pushing placebo buttons in whatever places. God, I pray that you would show each one of us what those places are. Convict us, Lord. Help us to see and discern what our placebo buttons are. God, I pray that you would help us to lay those things down, to stop pushing them over and over, thinking that we're going to get a different result. Help us to lay those things down and put our trust in you, our satisfaction in you. Lord, we know that you are the one who is in control. And I pray that every single one of us would submit to that control in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.